Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? That's an interesting question, man. And I'm not really sure if I can, yeah, believe it. Well, good, because last week, you know, we talked about how the Musk and the Zucks were going through that feud with Zucks saying, hey, let's do this fight, quit stalling. And Musk was all like, you're a chicken. You remember that from last week? <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, sorry. Sorry. My chicken got out there. Whoa. Oh, man. Come back. Hey, buddy. Come back. Come back. Come back. All right. We're good now. We're good. I got him in. Yep. Well, so this week, man, they're back at it, Scott. So Zucks declined Musk's offer to do a practice fight at Zucks Mansion and then told Musk to go train on his own and then shoot him a text when he's ready to fight for real or just to give it up. You know, and so now Musk is again calling for a fight with the old Zuckerberger with cheese. Hold the pickle, please. <laughs> Under any circumstances. Did you hear this? So ridiculous. He's just blowing smoke, dude. Everybody knows he's got the money, but he doesn't have the stones. Doesn't have the you stones. know what I mean? Doesn't stones. have the stones. But yeah, he was on the uh, Musk was on Rogan's little podcast that he's got going on over there. And he told Rogan that he didn't need any time to prepare for a fight. And added that his cardio will not be a factor, which is just ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. And he went on to, yeah. And he went on to say, I'm willing to do it anytime, anywhere, any place, any rules. I challenge him to a duel under any circumstances. Pistols at dawn, nerf guns at noon. And as you can tell, Musk is a bit of a poet, a real wordsworth. And then, you know, he went on to talk about how he'll go in for his ace in the in the bag, right? It's his it's his move. He calls the walrus, where he just lays on top of his opponent. And then slowly works on getting some sort of an arm bar or a leg bar, resulting in a tap and a win. Dude, what the? It's so ridiculous because it, it just, there's no there's snowballs chance in hell that he would win. Hell no. You know? And it, it makes me wonder like, is there some kind of side action going on where they're like, all right, everyone's going to bet on Zuckerberg to win, and then you're going to oh, take a fall, man. Zuckerberg. And then someone's going to just like the mafia is going to hit it big off of Musk winning the fight, oh, you know, God. like the, the odds. Wouldn't put it past Who him. knows, dude? But just remember I said Wouldn't that. Put it past if yes. this actually happens. That is on the record. Remember I said that. That is on the record. But yeah, so I guess his mom wasn't able to call off the fight after all. So the fight card is still on the table. And hopefully the sideshow will take place sooner than later and the charities will get that money. But on another note, Scott, buddy, how are you doing this fantastic evening? Whoa. Hey, man. That's just like expands and warms my heart that you would ask me that. You know, I'm doing pretty well, dude. How how are you, though? How are you, man? Great, bro. I am doing wonderful. <laughs> you look great. Hey, you look hey, great. Thank you. Hey, that, that was a really good picture you sent me at, at, uh, at the wedding. Yeah, right. Good. Submit that. Good. But, uh, GQ. GQ, yeah, coming your way. Hey, so a uh, huge question for you. Big oh. question here. Okay. What's your take on human trafficking? Ooh. Uh, that's big question. Yeah, that's dark. Um, geez. Yeah, I don't like it. I mean, I that's what I can say right out the gate is uh, I don't like it. It's a great answer. That is a great answer, sir. But have you heard of a woman named Laura Silsby or Laura Silsby Gaylor as she sometimes goes by? Do you know her? I got to be honest. I don't want to tell a lie. I do not know who this person is. Well, what if I told you that she knew you? Wait, what? She knows me? Like, how does she know me? Bro, she's known you since you were just a little pudgy nugget of a child. When we were just a fresh pile of folds and weird fleshy stubs and just a tuft of the darkest hair you can imagine. Whoa. 
Well, first of all, she didn't know me very well because I had a lot more than a tuft <laughs> of hair on my head when I was a baby. And second of all, that's really freaky, man. So uh, quit trying to scare me, bro. All right. Come on, bro. Right, I was right. doing good. Now I'm not doing so good. All right. Well, let's not frighten you. All right. Let's take a couple steps back here. I'll be the first to admit that she probably has never known who you are, like ever. <laughs> and you should probably feel pretty lucky about that, my friend. Oh, all right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm trying to feel better about it. Yeah. A little rattled. A little rattled. Yeah, well, you're going to be really rattled at the end of the show here. But I can assure you that she most definitely, most motherfucking definitely did want to know you back when you were just that lumpy little chunk of potter's clay. Good God, man. Why? Because, dude. Because. Well, I guess you got a point. I sure do, buddy. I sure do. So let me just tell you a little something about this Laura Silsby Gaylor. Please do. I'd love to know. Yes, you would. And I've been wanting to do an episode on this lady for a very long time. It might just piss a lot of people off, as it should. Hell yeah, brother. I can't wait. Oh. oh. Are... Are those toads? Weird. Huh. Oh, yes. I guess that's my cue to start the world-renowned segment of our show that keeps the girls mysteriously intrigued. While feeling a little guilty about it, you know what I'm saying? And keeps the guys side-eyeing those girlfriends and wives who are acting more than a little suspicious under those blankets in the other room. Yes, that's correcto, El Foco. It's time for Trey Portrays. Always gold. Always gold, man. Well, we're going to start this week's Trey Portray off with a story from Newsweek.com. Brian Koberger, a name we haven't mentioned in a while, but we're bringing it back now. People need to know investigators are returning to the murder house in a new turn in the case in Idaho. Okay. Yeah, they're coming back, or they're trying. Anyways, but the FBI actually directed Newsweek to a recent statement issued by University of Idaho, which said, quote, in the article, because the trial of Brian Koberger is delayed indefinitely, investigators in the prosecution recently asked University of Idaho for access to the King Road house where the quadruple homicide took place nearly a year ago. They're trying to get documentation to construct visual and audio exhibits and a physical model of the home, where if you remember, Ethan Chapin, Zana Kernodal, Madison Moggin, and Kaylee Goncalves were killed. So that's pretty crazy. They're like, hey, man, this trial is suspended indefinitely. Like, let us in there. We got we to gotta move along with this case. We got to get stuff set up. We need, to, we need to move forward in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had already gone through the house and taken a bunch of evidence, and they're set to destroy the house. Right, it was supposed right. to be destroyed, like, last week or something like that. Um, but the court postponed that destruction so they can go back in there and get more evidence, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting. So Koberger, the last time they appeared in court, his lawyers argued to have the grand jury indictment thrown away, which is ridiculous. And the, <laughs> the judge overseeing the case denied it. He was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Come on, just just toss Come it on, out. Man. Come on, guys. Just, just toss it out. Come on. Uh, Come but on, dur out. during last week's hearing, Judge John Judge, which that's a crazy name for a judge. It's a real name, Judge John Judge. He did announce that cameras would be allowed in the courtroom for some of the upcoming hearings. So we're actually going to get to see this, yeah. you know, which is crazy. It's a big case. It's a huge case. Absolutely. What? Candace? I can't hear you. Please speak clearer in my earpiece, Candace, please. Into my earpiece, Candace. Candace, please. Talk, Candace, into the earpiece. Please, Candace. 
wait, wait a minute. This is just coming in. Everybody quiet down, please. Shh, shh, crowd. You, sir, please step back. This is just coming in. Give me some space here to receive this information. One moment. Yes, this is just in. Newsnation.com is telling us that the judge in Kerberger's case, that is Judge John Judge, that's correct, by the way, has set a December 1st deadline to submit any DNA evidence. Oh, wow, this also just in. Idaho murder suspect Brian Koberger wins genetic genealogy legal battle as judge allows his lawyers to review evidence. Ouch, what happened there? I feel like I just became Murphy Brown for a minute or something. Wow. Ow, my head freaking hurts, dude. Dude. Man, what? Ah, oh. Dude, wow, that was incredible. You just became a bona fide news anchor man, dude. Not quite Murphy Brown, sorry. What? But that was wild, man. Do it again, do it again. Whoa, I, dude, I don't even know what I did. Oh, damn, that hurt a lot. Yeah, well, what's your next story? Oh, yes, 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 you're absolutely right, Coop. We must get on with the next story. This is what's important here. You're absolutely correct. This next story, that would be number two of this fantastic weekly edition of Trey Portray. I cannot and will not allow these attorneys to represent you. And that is actually the title of this article. A judge disqualifies Richard Allen's former attorneys and sets a new trial date. Those are the words that the judge presiding over the case involving Richard Allen, who is alleged to have murdered Libby German and Abby Williams. Apparently, the attorneys that were representing Richard Allen found themselves steeped in some hot tea with no crumpets. Tis quite a travesty in my book. The judge said they made a few mistakes, equating to negligence and ineffective assistance of counsel, and a hearing was set just this last Tuesday, on October 31st, to determine his ability to be an effective attorney, and if not, he was to be disqualified. The two attorneys were disqualified, and two new court-appointed attorneys have been placed as Richard Allen's dedicated and hard-working attorneys who want nothing but the truth and for justice to be served. So apparently none of that mattered. And the judge simply said to Richard, I'm sorry that this has happened, Mr. Allen. And here's the real nutcracker. Just one week before, the judge disqualified his original attorneys. His original attorneys had filed a motion to disqualify the judge. He disqualified them. <laughs> this is just crazy. And Bob's your uncle. The new lawyers filed a motion to push the trial date, which was granted. And the trial is to begin on October 15th and is expected to last until October 31st. <laughs> Whoa. Whew. What? Man, what is happening to me? What? I, that didn't crap, even make any dude. sense. Dude, what the hell? Oh, I just feel I feel like I was out of my body for the last minute or two, like seriously. Bro, you just oh, man, you just fully mimicked the perfect English anchorman, like right on point. Oh, what? No way, dude. Really? Yeah, dude, no joke. It's even recorded. Oh. Well, okay, well, that's interesting, but man, my head you good? hurts. You want some toilet water? I think I'm, I think I'm all right. Ugh. Sweet, bro. So what's your third story? Oh, yeah, the third story. Hell yeah, it's a great one. Let me tell you. You ever hear of Erin Patterson? No, I have not. <laughs> I haven't either, Coop, but she was arrested and charged for allegedly poisoning her former in-laws. Oh, jeez. This last story comes to us from www.msn.com. And this was posted November 2nd, so just recently. Apparently, Erin Patterson, the woman at the center of this infamous mushroom lunch, has now been arrested and charged with multiple counts of murder and attempted murder to boot. Dang. Huh. What do you know about that? That's pretty crazy. Apparently, on the 29th of July, Miss Patterson hosted her former in-laws, Don and Gail Patterson, and a local pastor and his wife 
at her her Leon Gotha home. She served them lunch. They all chatted a little bit. And then the guests fell mysteriously ill and they were taken to the hospital. Hmm. On August 4th, Gail Patterson and Heather died, Damn. which is crazy. And the next day, on August 5th, Don Patterson also died oh, in the hospital. Fuck. And then soon after, Victorian health authorities announced that the three had died from death cap mushroom poisoning. Ooh. That's, it, it, the official cause of death hasn't been confirmed, but damn, bro, that's dark. Dude, doesn't that just like destroy your liver, basically? I think you, yeah, like your the body toxins just fails. And the death cap and just then fucking destroy your shit. Yeah, your body can't process things correctly, and then you just something builds up and then you just die like your health just rapidly declines and then you're done yeah but uh miss patterson denied it of course she told reporters i didn't do anything i love them but uh she did say that she cooked a beef wellington that had mushrooms in it for lunch that day so Mm. she says she bought the mix of mushrooms that she used at a supermarket and an asian grocery store she said she also felt a little bit unwell after the meal right Mm, maybe all that guilt Maybe that side of guilt that she was eating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just has a fucking iron stomach, I guess. I guess she's. What they don't know is I've slowly been building up an immunity to death cap mushrooms. (laughs) Yeah. Um. But apparently, on September twenty third, Ian Wilkinson was released from the hospital when he had previously been in critical condition. So not all of them died, but she was arrested and charged with three counts of murder and five counts of attempted. Damn. uh, Yeah, we'll have to follow that. I'm quite death curious. Mushrooms. I must say. Yeah, death cap mushrooms. Wow. Who would have thought? Don't eat them. Don't eat them. Yeah, don't do it. But anyways, that does it for this week's Trey Poor Trey's. That was a really good beef. Dude, beef Wellington's probably one of the best. Now, let me let me ask let me so ask good. you this though, man. How much do you think it would cost for the for the band members to keep those instruments tuned? Ooh, um, apparently a little bit too much. It's like every slowly getting out of tune again. But you know, right, okay. Well, maybe we'll kick them an extra five points ah, next week. Maybe. Check our check our uh, stoffers. Is that what's called stoffers? Coffers. Coffers. To check our coffers. We have to check our stofers, man. Our lasagna. Check our stofers in the check oven, bro. That. I left that stofers in there, dude. <laughs> I don't know if that's enough to do it. Oh man. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. This story begins with businesswoman and Baptist Church missionary leader Laura Silsby, who was born in Idaho on July 31st, 1969, making her 54 years old. She studied business administration and accounting at Washington State University, graduating in 1991. She worked for Hewlett Packard in Boise, Idaho, for upwards of six years doing financial and internet marketing shit. The vice president of Hewlett Packard at the time was a man named Von Hansen. Remember that name. In either 1999 or 2000, she and this guy named James Hammonds designed a patent which was apparently a method for creating and operating a personalized internet store. The whole idea was to make it easier for people to shop online by organizing and comparing prices or some shit like that. I'm not really sure, but it sounds like the blueprints to every online store we see today. After that, she started a business and created a website called Avenue Me, which became fairly successful. And that's when a large retailer called Avenue 
filed suit against her for trademark issues. Suffice to say, Laura lost the suit and would have to go on to change the name of her business to Personal Shopper. The website became a bigger hit, and in 2006, Laura Silsby was named the International Femtour Businesswoman of the Year by eWoman Network. On his LinkedIn, Von Hansen is listed as being the CEO and founder of Personal Shopper. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, already the connections are that's a little suspicious, you know what I mean? Yes, and apparently at some point, Laura stopped paying the web designer and fell into debt about $10,000 or so. Ultimately, it came down to the web designer company to sue Laura, which is something she would become all too familiar with here shortly, and the web designer won. Oh, But they were forced to seize anything she had of value to settle that debt. Literally chairs, desks, computers, coffee pots, boxes of paper clips, fake plants, desk lamps, who knows? Wow, they came for everything, dude. Could you imagine like her on the sidelines watching all this stuff? Like, I sat in that chair, just all this stuff ex- exiting. <laughs> right. take, that one, take that over there. Grab just, like, about grabbing her. everything up. Damn. Excuse me, ma'am. Just like grab the right floor carpet she's sitting on, like yeah. ripping up the carpet. They just cut it around her and just leave that one little piece. Well, that's you. Damn, clearing it's house. Cold. And then her house was foreclosed on, and things started to fall apart for poor little Laura. It was around this time, 2004 to be exact, that it's said that she filed for divorce from her husband Terry Silsby. Before she was married to Terry Silsby, she was married to a man that she divorced and would later marry. And his name was Norman Wade Gaylor. So she married Norman first, divorced him, then married Terry, then divorced Terry. And later on, she married Gaylor again. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. But her divorce to Terry became final in 2007. And presumably due to the divorce settlement in 2008, she would buy a newly built five bedroom house with five acres in Meridian, Idaho, which the bank would foreclose on in 2010. But we'll get to why that possibly happened. Jeez, already this story has got a lot of twists and turns. I'm just like, man, yeah. we haven't even, scra- we've just scratched the surface. I haven't even got to it yet. And it was also around 2008 that many of the employees that worked for her on the Personal Shopper website filed complaints against Laura for not paying them. There was one woman, Robin Oliver, who decided to sue Laura after she failed to pay her five consecutive paychecks. And Robin was hired at a position that paid $110,000 a year, which is Whoa. like $2 million today. So that's a lot of money to fall behind on, five paychecks. Yeah, around. absolutely. You'd be like, uh, I'd be a little pissed. Probably I'm not getting my money, probably. Yeah. And in the preceding handful of years, Laura would be facing at least eight civil lawsuits and 14 other suits ranging from unpaid wages to wrongful termination to bank fraud, mostly related to personal shopper. Anyway, the whole thing went under, and Laura looked for other ways to make a living and pay her accumulating debts and lawsuits. As I mentioned, Laura was a Baptist missionary leader, and a horrible one at that, which we'll get into shortly. Many of her close friends and colleagues would say that Laura had a really big desire to help children, but what they didn't know is that she had an even bigger hard-on to make money in a much more lucrative way. In 2009, 40-year-old Laura and 24-year-old Carissa Coulter, her best friend and live-in nanny, would quote-unquote start, and I say start very loosely here, the New Life Children's Refuge, which they said would be an orphanage. And they alleged to have purchased some property in the Dominican Republic with the intent to establish that orphanage. 
Their mission? Well, their mission was to relocate children from the Dominican Republic to the loving Christian families in the United States, which sounds pretty good on the scab surface. And it turns out, though, that it was anything but good. This whole thing just seems... Uh, it just seems like some kind of trap or something. Something is amiss. I don't like it. She's just too flaky in all the, all the other areas of her life to actually be a do-gooder, you know? Exactly, man. All that crap behind her, all this lie, yeah, it's just crazy. So it's important to note that the New Life Children's Refuge wasn't even registered as an official organization at the time of the story taking place. I don't think it was ever registered. There was definitely no official listing of it anywhere. Laura and Carissa would make a month-long visit to the Dominican Republic in July of 2009 and met with a real estate agent and inquired about properties that were available to make an orphanage, a couple of schools, and a clinic in a rougher area of the, of the Dominican Republic called Gaspar Hernandez. And apparently Gaspar Hernandez is or was a well-known area of the Dominican Republic where pederasty was said to run rampant. The two Baptist women would make several trips to Haiti and the Dominican Republic and travel to multiple cities visiting already existing orphanages. And a little side note here, back in 2016, there were said to be 760 different orphanages operating in Haiti alone, helping somewhere around 380,000 orphaned children. And that's not including the Dominican Republic. 760 orphanages in Haiti. It's a lot. That's yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. And dude, Haiti isn't very big, man. For those familiar like I guess for those familiar with Europe, Haiti is only about 3,000 square kilometers smaller than Belgium. For anyone more familiar with the United States, Haiti is about the size of Maryland. It's slightly smaller than Maryland with roughly 11,000 square miles or almost 28,000 square kilometers. And the population of Maryland in 2010 was about 5.8 million while the population of Haiti in 2010 was about 9.8 million. Population in Belgium, about 11 million. Oh, wow. That, all those numbers kind of surprised me. I know that's a sidebar, but they had a lot of people squeezed into a small place. On an island. 760 orphanages. Yeah, on an island. And the two women were also visiting the homes of local families, asking those families if they could just take their children and go off to the New Life Children's Orphanage for a better life in the Dominican Republic, which didn't even exist. And it's generally thought that Laura and Carissa were waiting for a permanent structure to be built on the land that Laura said they had purchased or were in the process of purchasing. But this would later be disproven when the authorities, local authorities, and the U.S. State Department revealed that Laura never even submitted applications to purchase land or build an orphanage. So basically, they just went to Haiti, looked around. Yes. And that's all that officially happened. Yeah. And said that there was this orphanage that didn't exist. Right. It's all so in there. Alluded head. to the orphanage. And then on January 12th, 2010, the massive 7.1 magnitude earthquake would strike Haiti. The quake would end up killing around 223,000 people while injuring a further 300,000 and displacing around another 3 million. It was a devastating natural disaster and the perfect breeding grounds for the exploitation of Haiti and its people, which the Clintons had a huge hand in, probably in every way you can think of. This, in turn, prompted Laura to get the ball rolling on collecting children. She would use her connections to gather money and nine other people who were other missionaries to expedite her plan. 
She contacted the real estate agent that she already met with in Haiti, who in turn met with the Roman Catholic Church officials who agreed to rent 45 rooms in a hotel, which would cost around $7,400 per month for a total of six months. While Laura was making calls and trying to find support, she met a married couple named Richard and Melinda from Kentucky. And a huge shout out to our listeners in Kentucky. Yeah, old Kentucky bluegrass. Oh, yeah. Good. Now, this couple, they were looking to adopt. And after going through the typical legal process with all the typical paperwork and whatnot, they were given the green light to adopt three children, all siblings, from the Compassion for All Orphanage located in Haiti. Once the groundwork was laid out and pieces were being shoved into place, Laura reached out to Richard and Melinda, informing them of the situation and offered her services to get the children for them while she was in Haiti. The couple were a little suspicious, to say the least, and told Laura that they would pass on her offer. But this did not stop Laura from calling them back multiple times in the days leading up to her leaving for Haiti. Each time that she called, the couple had to remind Laura that they did not want her help and to just leave the children alone. That would be huge red flags. You have this person who you already said no to once, continues to keep calling. Yeah, you've never reached out or talked to her or need these services, and they're like, hey. You don't even know her. You know, or she, I, sorry, she is like, hey, I could help you with those kids. They're like, excuse me, no, we don't need your help. And she just continues. So spooky, dude. Pretty spooky. That person is like on you, like, hey, let me let me get the kid for you. Can I get the kids for you? Let, just let me do it. Hey, I got those kids for you, man. Hey. Hello, Nears got Sometime between the 22nd and 25th of January 2010, Laura, Carissa, and the eight other missionaries flew to the Dominican Republic. And just the next day, the 26th, Laura and the group would take a bus to Haiti and make a visit to an orphanage called the Friends of the Orphans of Haiti. It was here that the Atlanta, Georgia-based Haitian minister, Pastor Jean Sainville, and the staff of the orphanage dubiously handed over 40 Haitian children to the group to be brought to Laura's non-existent New Life Children's Refuge in the Dominican Republic. Ugh, I hate it. Just, I mean, they wanted to believe so badly that they were going to a good place. The adults, I mean. The kids, they didn't know any better. Oh, I'm no. sure. They didn't know shit. But they're just like, okay, well, here you go, good people, I think. Well, it's going to get a lot better here. As all of this was happening and the children were being placed on a bus, a concerned witness became suspicious of their actions and decided to notify the authorities who then took swift action. Now, there are two versions of this. One is that the group was stopped as they were trying to enter the DR, and the other is that the police swooped in before the group was even able to leave the orphanage. Either way, they were stopped with the 40 undocumented children in their possession. Laura, being the mouthpiece of the group, tried to explain what their group was all about and what they were trying to do. You know, help the children. Oh, I'm sure. You know, just like, can't you see we're trying to help these people? And they're like, we'll determine whether or not you're trying to help these people or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the police. Yeah, so they, they basically told them, we don't give a shit about your little group. Let me see some documentation for those children, right? And Laura didn't have any documentation. So the police then informed them that the very thing that they were attempting to do was actually very illegal, you know, that thing called human trafficking. So the children were immediately removed from their possession, and Laura was told to make a visit to the Dominican embassy, 
where she met with the Dominican Republic Consulate General Carlos Castillo. Carlos was brought up to speed on the situation and told Laura that he was more than happy to sign off on any authentic paperwork that she had with her. Problem was that Laura didn't have any of that paperwork. She did, however, have her wit and saving grace. She quickly told Carlos Castillo that she did apply for a permit to cross the border with the children. Pretty quick thinking, right? Uh, you think? No, I, I can't believe that this person would go for it, but... I mean, yeah. Oh, I applied for a permit. Uh, I mean, c- can you believe like that's the best she could do? Yeah. Though it's like being at the airport and like buying a plane ticket and just trying to get on any plane before your flight is supposed to leave. Yeah. Oh, I. I mean, I just I bought the ticket. I was at the gate, and I mean, this is where it told me to go. And wrong gate. This is even the right airline. Yeah, I bought a ticket though. They're like, this flight is going to Sudan, and. Your ticket says it's a domestic flight. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so all that quick thinking just wasn't quick enough. Being a consulate general and all, Carlos looked it up in the system and found that there were no records of Laura putting in for any permits allowing her to do any such thing. The consulate then warned Laura that if she tried to carry through with her plan without the proper paperwork, that she would be arrested for human trafficking. Laura thanked him for his time took his business card, and left the consulate with new plans a-brewing. Oh, I'm sure they were. That's pretty crazy that they didn't arrest her on the spot because they did catch her trying to leave the country with undocumented children. And maybe he was just like, nah, I really want to give this person the benefit of the doubt. and just Right. You know, maybe she just got stuffed up and we made her nervous and this and that, so they let her go. A bit... uh, Never mind. I think that was a lot. I think that was a lot of it. Plus, like, the whole situation going on with the earthquake just happening. Like, there's so much chaos happening. Yeah. So I'm sure they're just like, let's just calm down and try to figure this out, you know, before we arrest anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So Laura, being the savvy, quick-thinking Baptist businesswoman that she was, took a step back and over the next couple of days formed a solid plan with her cohorts. Then, on the 29th of January... They went back to Haiti and gathered 33 different children from the town of Calabas and Le Citron in Port-au-Prince, including one three-month-old baby. Oh, man. They then attempted to bring them back to the Dominican Republic again. But this time, Laura and her entire criminal gang of 10 would be arrested for child abduction and criminal association. Good. It's so ballsy of her to, like, do that. I don't understand. Yeah, she just yeah, just does it again. She's like, <laughs> now that I know what's going to happen if we don't, Let's do it, you know. Just and just, I'm pretty sure she went through the same border crossing too. <laughs> oh, I can guarantee it. I don't. I don't have those facts, but I can almost guarantee that she was that ballsy that she just went through the same fucking border crossing again. Well, and just how mental too. Just to like, no, I'm just so determined. Like she's right, determined. Man, this lady does not seem stable. So the ten child traffickers would be held, and the children would be brought back to their homes and general support system. And here's a point to make. Most of the 33 children that they tried to kidnap, they weren't even orphans. They actually had families, Scott. Crazy shit. That is ridiculous. And after they were caught, the families of the children would tell reporters and the police that Laura's group put a lot of pressure on them to hand their children over under the guise of a better life. They didn't want to let their children go, but in the end, through their utter despair, they were pressured enough to allow it. 
Laura's own mother would come out later with information informing the media that Laura was fully aware that the children had families, despite Laura acting completely oblivious to everyone, even going on live television while being held in a Haitian jail and telling the world that all of the children were suffering orphans left with nothing. Wow. Jeez. She's psycho. Yeah. She's so evil. In their investigations, the authorities would find that while the group was in Calabas and Lesachon, they were going from house to house looking for susceptible children to take with them under the false promise of a better life at this fake orphanage. Laura assured the families of the children that they wouldn't put the children up for adoption, but the authorities just took a simple glance at the group's mission statement. All right. And what was that exactly? Well, it was basically a fairly detailed outline of their entire plan, which was to go to Haiti or the Dominican Republic or wherever and gather vulnerable children to take with or without parents' approval back to the United States with the full intention of being adopted. Oof. Man. I love how they just lined that out in their... They made it easy, right? Absolutely. Well, we're going to go to some place, and we're going to get some kids, and we're going to bring them back and adopt them out. They have no authority to do any of this. No. It's just insane. No, not at all. They're doing it as casually as, oh, I'm going to go to... uh, Europe, I'm going to pick up some cheap phones, and then I'm going to come back to the United States, and I'm going to hawk them. Exactly. You know, I'm going to sell them. And check this out. There was another orphanage that Laura made a visit to while trying to gather more children. It was called the Compassion for All Orphanage. Remember that one? That was the same orphanage where the couple, Richard and Melinda, had adopted the three siblings who were still in Haiti and who told Laura to leave the kids alone. Laura blatantly told the staff at the orphanage that she was a very close friend of both Richard and Melinda, and that they gave her implicit permission to pick the children up and deliver them back to Kentucky and right into their waiting hands like a little angel. The staff were questionable, and part of that was because they were never contacted or informed by Richard or Melinda about the change in plans, which was a pretty big change in plans, if you'd ask me. And then they informed her that the children had been moved to another location possibly saving the children from her. The Pied Piper then asked if the staff had any other children that might just be lying around that she could take with her, but the staff refused to work with her at all. That's that's good, man, because I'm trying to put myself in the place of these people behind the desk, right? The uh, metaphorical desk. Maybe there's a real one. But anyways, uh, they're standing there. This woman's like, well, do you, I mean, do you guys have, like, any other kids, maybe, that I could take? <laughs> and... The staff are like, what? No, get out of here. Yeah, she's just all desperate. Licking her lips. <laughs> rubbing her hands. Do you have any other kids? Shady. Well, do, you, do, you, do you have any other kids? Jeez. Yeah. What, what are the other, I know you have other kids here. You're an orphanage, right? You have other kids, right? Gross. Can I get some of those kids? What about that one over there? What about well, that one right there? Can I have that one? Gross. Yeah. And apparently, after being refused the children, Laura went and hired a guide to take her around to different orphanages and translate for her. Later, in an interview, Richard and Melinda said that whenever an orphanage would refuse to hand the children over to her, she would fall to her knees and start crying. Textbook manipulation, bro. Man, she really pulled out, like, every trick in the books to try to convince these people to let her have a kid. Like, oof. Absolutely. Spooky. She was willing to do anything. And Richard even made a good point about Laura crying. He said something along the lines of, why would you cry when you see that these children are being completely taken care of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have families. They, their families don't want to let them go. Like, yeah, you might feel, you know, 
compassion for the the surrounding area and the tragedy and you know everybody rebuilding but seeing like parents continue to just carry on and keep their kids and be like you know what we're gonna get through this like that would just that would give most people strength yeah i feel like you know not just like oh my god you poor kid it's kind of insulting to the parents really and a lot of these orphanages like a lot of these families they didn't have a lot of money and this still goes on today they didn't have a lot of money to have their kids at home with them so they would have the orf the orphanages take care of them and the families could go to the orphanages and visit them or they could go back to the families and visit them but they would basically stay at the orphanage because the families just didn't have a lot of money so that that is part of all of this too that makes sense but you know nothing would or could change laura's mind on carrying out her plan the group would gather the 33 children, again with the help of Pastor Jean Sainville, and loaded them onto a bus and headed for the Dominican Republic. Of course, they were stopped, and Laura was again questioned about her motives. Laura had this all planned out, though, through and through. When questioned, she coyly handed over Carlos Castillo's business card and told them that Carlos had given her his personal permission, but more importantly, his blessings, to pass over the border with the 33 undocumented children. And just as Carlos had looked up Laura's name and his system about her alleged permits, the border police looked into what Laura was telling them, and they made a quick phone call to none other than Carlos Castillo, who then angrily denied giving any such permission to Laura, or any blessings for that matter, to bring children, undocumented children, across the border. That's so insane. Like, decides to drop the name of the the consulate. (laughs) I know, man. I mean, like, oh, yeah, this guy, yeah, he told me I could. You know, has a be business like, card. Here's a business card. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It'd be like if you and I were like, hey, Joe Biden told me I could grab these pizzas for free, just like trying to head out. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, dude, call him up. Call him up. Call him up. Call up Joe Biden. I, he told me I could have these pizzas. He's like, all right, all right, hold on. Let me call him up. Like, Calls up Joe Biden. Give me a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> White House. Come on, man. And on February 4th, 2010, all 10 Baptists would be charged with 33 counts of kidnapping, one count for each of the children they attempted to kidnap and traffic out of Haiti. Each of the 10 was interviewed individually by the judge in charge of the case, Bernard Sainville. And I am unsure if this judge, Sainville, has any relation to Pastor Sainville, but I'm thinking it's safe to assume that uh, he does. Anyway, somehow Edwin Cock would be appointed as the attorney for the entire group of 10 Americans, and he would put in a request for the release of his clients. The judge denied the request because he wanted to do a full investigation into the matters of Laura Silsby and her group because he felt that something was off, something was stanky about Laura. And the judge had a great reason to feel this way because Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and the whole geographical area is consistently battered with hurricanes and earthquakes. And every time a natural disaster brings chaos, it brings with it a deluge of shady organizations that are out to exploit every aspect of the disaster. And this rings true for every area that is hit by a disaster all over the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good opportunity for people trying to make a quick buck to set up fake charities or fake Kickstarters, and then they just pocket the money. You know, it's unfortunate that people try to capitalize on other people's suffering, but it's a tale as old as time, and I'm sure it's going to continue. It'll always continue. It's just going to get worse, too. Like, the shit just more, it's more blatant. So, as it pertains to Haiti and or the Dominican Republic, right after the 2010 earthquake that destroyed Haiti, their government was already well aware of illicit groups that prey on the vulnerable families of hard-hit areas. 
and they made immediate changes to their adoption policies, making it much more difficult to be approved. It was a much more stringent process. Meaning that you couldn't just take undocumented children from Haiti and bring them to another country without either government knowing? Hmm. That's weird. Yeah. Because of this, and the fact that Laura and her group were warned twice not to carry through with their plans, the government of Haiti sought the maximum penalties after being charged with child abduction and criminal association. While Laura was definitely the ringleader of the group and Carissa was her second in command, the other eight seemed to actually be completely innocent in the whole thing. After they were arrested and placed in jail, the group of eight would write a letter to the NBC news crew that were there filming this thing, and it basically said that they felt that they were in danger and they worried for their leader, Laura. But what was more important about it was that they were adamant that they had nothing to do with anything Laura was up to. They were just there to help with this orphanage that Laura had told them about. And they said something like, we believe lies. So I'm guessing they were saying that they were lied to by the businesswoman of the year. Yeah, she must have been pretty convincing because all eight never questioned it, especially even <laughs> after the first time that they got denied. Just fully on board like, with oh, it. Oh, let's try again. Yeah. And the letter was signed by the eight, but not by Laura or Carissa. And I do believe that it was due to the two groups being separated. And within a few weeks after their arrest and the letter was taken into consideration, those eight people were released and sent back home in the United States. The judge still wanted to hold on to the other two for some further looking into, pap smear and all. Oh, doing a deep investigation. Yeah, um, but love on. But I mean, if those people really were innocent and the judge did want to do an investigation where they talked to every single person individually, he may have seen that, you know what, these guys really just were trying to help and they got caught up with the wrong person and they were too naive to believe that she was crazy because she was very stuck to her guns the whole time. I'm just trying to help the children. Even getting emotional about it. Like some people could fall for that, you know? Oh, man, yeah. Well, people fall for it all the time, you know? And I'm sure, like, by, by the sounds of it, they were just manipulated into this. And Exactly. I think they were... They she were just needed people to make the organization look legit, because if she was trying to right. do it by herself, it would, she would have just been laughed at. <laughs> she, she just goes down there alone. I'm an orphanage. Yeah. Give me your children. So I got this orphanage, and it needs children. So I see you guys got some <laughs> children here. Uh, you know, want to help me out? Hmm? And so it's kind of funny, too. It's like they already have so many orphanages, and then you go there and, like, establish another orphanage, and then you go to other orphanages, and you're like, can I have some of your children to put in my orphanage? Yeah, ridiculous. It's like, what's what's the point of this? Yeah. Oh, don't worry. Mine's American. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know, man. Something just iffy about that whole idea in itself, you know? Agreed. So the judge analyzed Laura's actions leading up to her arrest and all of the lies that she gave to the authorities, you know, about the land, about her orphanage, the permits to bring the children across the border and the false permission by Carlos. And especially the one about how she didn't know the children weren't even orphans. I mean, these are serious charges and he did not trust this woman and he wanted to know more. And in the meantime, he would release Carissa after a few more weeks. Interesting. The second in command yeah. got released. Yeah. So the prosecution was seeking a six-month sentence for Laura. Six months. Six months, you hear that. Which was a huge reduction from the original sentence that they wanted. But the original charges were conspiracy and child abduction. 33 counts of that. But Scott, somehow, for some reason, after four months, Laura Silsby would be released after pleading guilty to the charge of arranging irregular travel. 
which is a uh, well, well, it's nothing. It's like driving without your seatbelt. Yeah, it sounds like a a traffic ticket. Yeah, yeah, pretty much is, man. So you go from thirty three counts of conspiracy and child abduction down to arranging irregular travel. And once released, Laura Silsby was allowed to return to Idaho, where she had later remarried Norman Gaylor in 2015. Yikes. But we'd be skipping ahead, so let's slow down. So what the hell just happened here? This woman and her nine cohorts were caught trying to traffic children twice from Haiti into the Dominican Republic so that the children could be sent to the United States under the guise of being adopted. They get caught twice and were given warnings they lied, they manipulated, and they straight up kidnapped 73 children, 40 the first time, 33 the second time. But for whatever reason, eight of the 10 were released without further question, and the two ringleaders were released with time served, totaling less than four months. So what the fuck happened? Why were those charges reduced so drastically? It's just, it doesn't make any sense, you know, especially given the vein that she, she literally tried to do it twice. A person who was not thrown after the first time being denied, uh, I mean, that's like habitual offending, you know? And it's, and still, they just let her off with a slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Not even. Not even a slap on the wrist. So moving on. Hal Nungister, director for His Home for Children in Haiti, was contacted by Laura during her search for children. Hal refused to help her, but he would later say, quote, They were looking for 100 orphans to take to the Dominican Republic. They had no paperwork. They had no authorization from the U.S. government, from the Haitian government, or from anyone involved. They were just taking kids. That fits right in with what I would classify as child trafficking. End quote. Yeah, absolutely. This guy's like actually legit. He's got the paperwork. He's got the organization. And he's like, no, go away, you freak. Yeah. You know? And being a director of an orphanage in Haiti already, he knows the circumstances. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, a legitimate orphanage. He's like, I know what I had to do. She had none of that. Right. He knows what what happens in these circumstances. He knows what to look for. And she was just a giant red flag. Just blue, 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 blue. Yeah. He was like, no, lady, you need to get out of here. 100%. So that Haitian attorney named Edwin Koch, he would quickly be removed and replaced by Jorge Puello. Jorge said that he had hired Edwin to represent the group, but would end up firing him for bribery. He would say that Edwin had reached out to the families of the victims to collect up to $60,000 to use to bribe the Haitian authorities. But this would be refuted by Edwin when he would tell reporters that he was actually hired by the husband of one of the detainees and not by Jorge. He also refuted Jorge's claims that he was fired as well by saying that he quit after not being paid money that was owed to him. Despite the attorney's conflicts with each other, Jorge Puello would now be representing the group. Jorge claimed that he was an attorney licensed to practice in the Dominican Republic, and some sources say Florida, but I'm unsure on that. But as it turned out, Jorge was not a licensed attorney at all. Oh, man. This is absolutely crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So who was this Jorge Puello guy? Well, his real name was Jorge Torres Oriano, and was actually a wanted man at the time in Costa Rica and El Salvador for crimes against children, human trafficking, specifically women and underage girls for prostitution, where they would lure young girls with promises of modeling jobs. And he was wanted for people smuggling 
and he was wanted for illegal immigration. Of course, the judge did not know this at the time. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if the judge knew that, he would never. Because the judge seems legit. Maybe. You know, in some ways. Still let him off with an easy sentence. Um, but, yeah, he... He, I'm sure, didn't have any idea. And what, what, what balls this Jorge has, man! He's wanted for all these serious, serious fucking crimes, and and he's going over here in Haiti, like acting like he's a fucking lawyer, an attorney, and it's a huge case too. So obviously, he's going to get media attention. So what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah, I feel like people in the Dominican Republic would be like, "Who? Like, I don't know this guy." Yeah, I mean, yeah. all the me- the media would be taking photographs of the lawyer of this group who's wanted for trafficking children. So they'd be like, "All right, who's this attorney? Oh, Jorge. Oh, well, he's wanted for blah 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 blah." Exactly. So, the judge did have some concerns about who this quote unquote attorney was that all of a sudden appeared and took over representing the group of Americans who were charged for trafficking children. And postpone the group's trial. But it's weird because nobody seemed to know who hired Jorge Puello. There are many who claim that Hillary and Bill Clinton appointed him. And there's a lot to point to that. But there are many others who say that the detained Americans' families hired him. And many others think that Jorge had prior dealings with Laura Silsby, who herself hired him. All are plausible. I did find one other piece of information that noted that Jorge was hired by Carla Thompson, the mission's coordinator at the Central Valley Baptist Church. But let's briefly forget about who retained him for a minute, and let's ask the question, how did they know him? Right, exactly, because you have this group from America. You have this quote-unquote wanted man lawyer from the Dominican Republic. How did they cross paths? How did they know each other? Who who knew this guy and like was like, okay, I'm going hi- to have to call this guy up to represent. I know a guy. I know a guy. He's wanted for a lot of sex crimes and stuff. He can be an attorney for a sex crime trial. I know a guy. So it turns out that Jorge had been arrested in 1999 for carrying false identification, which was a felony. He and his mother had also served time in federal prison for bank fraud, in which he was released in 2002. And at some point, he violated the terms of his release within 10 months, and a warrant was issued for his arrest by the U.S. Marshals. And so... While Judge Bernard Sainville postponed that trial in Haiti, Jorge would be arrested in an operation created by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and Homeland Security, or HSI. At the time that he was arrested for those crimes, his own wife was already serving time in prison in El Salvador for charges of presumed sexual exploitation of minors and women. For his part, Jorge Puello was pulled from representing Laura and was sentenced to three years in federal prison for alien smuggling, starting in June of 2011. He's honestly, he's lucky that that's the only thing he got charged for. No impersonation, no this, no that. But I'm glad he at least got caught eventually. I I think he might have been deported somewhere to face those other crimes. I'm not sure, though. I didn't look into it, but I see. Sure, extradited to the other country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this is a great start for the group, right? Now, now Lawyers has no representation. And so this is when Slippery Dick and Killery Rock Hard Rodham Clinton came on the scene. And they came all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> but what is interesting is that it appears that both Hillary and Bill Clinton took up quite an interest in Laura Silsby's nonprofit organization, the New Life Children's Refuge, in its early days. Oh, you don't say. An orphanage. I can't imagine why they'd be interested. 
And how do we know this? Well, we know a lot about a lot of things thanks to WikiLeaks. So, first of all, there are those who say that the WikiLeaks came from Russian hackers. And there are others who say that a man named Seth Rich, who was working with the Clintons and was part of Hillary's 2016 campaign, was the one who leaked all of the emails straight to WikiLeaks. Between the Russians and Seth Rich, it appears that the likely scenario was that Seth Rich was the one who leaked the emails, and there is a lot to point in that direction, especially when you consider that Seth Rich was murdered something like two weeks after WikiLeaks released the Hillary Clinton and John Podesta emails leaked by Seth, and further considering that references to making an example out of the leaker of the emails was in the emails. And further considering that Seth Rich was becoming vocal, very vocal, about his concerns about some of the corrupt shit that Hillary was up to during her campaign, particularly rigging the primaries. A lot of people flat out discount Seth Rich being behind the leak, but the award-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch came out to say that the FBI had indeed found evidence that Seth Rich passed the emails to WikiLeaks. Russian hackers, though, dude. Sounds so much more exciting. Yeah, and it worked as a great disinformation campaign tool and a point of distraction for Hillary and her campaign. Because again, and I'm probably going to find myself saying this throughout the podcast from here on out, but it's all about distraction. It's what these fuckers do. They are good at it because it's multi-layered. Regardless, what's important is that the emails are there and anyone can read them at their leisure. At any rate, Long before the 2010 earthquake, there were apparently some email exchanges between Hillary and her advisor, Huma Abedin, about Laura and her nonprofit organization. Laura was even asking for donations in some of these email threads, and she was presumably receiving them. Therefore, the Clintons were fully aware of who Laura Silsby was and what she was doing with starting up this New Life Children's Refuge nonprofit organization. Whoa, the connections so deep from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And a side note on Huma Abedin. She was the ex-wife of Anthony Weiner, or Carlos Danger, as he <laughs> liked to be referred to, and the former New York congressman who was convicted of illicit contact with minors for sending and receiving nude pics with a 15-year-old girl. And Scott, did you know that Huma Abedin is dating your boy toy, Bradley Cooper? Back off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she's dating your boy, dude. Yeah, what <laughs> Whatever, dude. <laughs> You're going to have to step it up and offer Bradley something that Huma can't. Yeah, well, I guess I'm hit, so. Yeah, come on, bro. Probably ain't I happening. Think... Yeah. Huma, get off. <laughs> get off of him already. Come on. <laughs> Quit that. Hey. Hey, man. So, Huma Abedin is tied up with a lot of this weird shit that the Clintons do, particularly Hillary, since it appears that the two have a really strong bond that goes way back. And Scott, you should look into Frazzle Drip. It's highly suspect, but worth the looking into. Have you heard of it? No, I have no idea. Frazzle Drip? Ladies and gentlemen, have you heard Frazzle Drip? So, well, look into it, Scott. And if you do find the video, because no one else has, please... Don't hesitate to share it. <laughs> All right. I'll uh, let you know. I'll get back to you on that. There, it, it might not even exist. It, it might. It might not. Who knows? No one knows. Speculation. It's all speculative. I don't want to get into it here because it'll take up too much time. But everyone, check out Frazzle Drip. Hillary Clinton. Frazzle Drip. Anthony Weiner. Laptop. So Hillary seemed to be very involved in the issue going on with Laura being jailed in Haiti for child trafficking, and was receiving updates on the situation. 
she contacted her chief of staff, Cheryl Mills, to figure out some options on what they could do to help Laura and also how they could spin the media coverage to their advantage and make light of the situation through distraction. And whatever those options were, we, the public, never got to hear about them. Ooh, that seems like a, a lie through omission. I don't like it. Well, it's how they got her out. What do they do in the, behind closed doors? So there's no doubt Hillary and Bill Clinton took an extraordinary interest in the case from the moment that Laura was arrested, and it didn't take long for them to step in on her behalf. The following comes from the Harvard Human Rights Journal. Quote, Bill Clinton's first acts as special envoy for the United Nations in Haiti was to put out the fire of a child abduction scandal involving American citizens. End quote. The first task was to put the fire out. Questions? Comments? Scott, I see you have your hand up. Yeah, I've definitely got some questions. So they just minimized this whole thing like, oh, Bill Clinton's first act was he just put out some fires in Haiti over this whole messy child abduction thing. You know, just we attended to that real quick and now we're done with it. Like, yeah. Whoa. Let's let's focus on that first before the whole Haiti earthquake. Like we got to get rid of this because that's a that's a huge thing. That's a huge fire burning. We got to put that out. Right. Then we'll deal with the earthquake. <laughs> then we'll deal with the earthquake. Yikes. Yeah. So, okay, obviously, the Clintons being heavily involved in this is highly questionable. And there is a U.S. Department policy that states that it is illegal for the government or an agent therein to personally step into a matter and become part of it. They are only to provide lists of local attorneys and local assistance to the person in need. The Clintons didn't give a shit about the laws, which means that this shit was severe enough meaning that their asses were on the line somehow, and they were desperate enough to blatantly ignore U.S. Department policies in order to personally handle some shit behind closed doors. Hillary even gave a live press release, and here is that audio. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um... Uh, we are um, providing counselor services. We have full access to them. Uh, the American ambassador is uh, speaking uh, with uh, uh, his counterparts in the Haitian government. Obviously, this is a matter for the Haitian judicial system. Um, we're going to continue to provide support, as we do in every instance like this, uh, to American citizens who have been charged. and. I uh, hope that uh, this uh, matter can be resolved uh, in an expeditious way. So, yeah, that was a lot of bullshit. It makes you ask, why do they care so much about Laura? Because if you think about it, when have they or any secretary of state or ex-president personally stepped in for an American who was caught trafficking children before Laura Silsby or after her? When? Has there ever been a time? I, I mean, it's a good it's a good question. I haven't heard of it, um, but who knows? Like what goes on, you know, like where we can't see. But this was public, right? And obviously, we're we found out about it. We know about it, and they did seem very involved. Like, was it just to be devil's advocate? Was it a thing where they were like, you know what? Even if she is guilty, she shouldn't have to stand trial in another country, type situation. Or is it more of a situation like, hey, we got to get our our pal out of there 
Or is it a little of both? Anyways, I'm just throwing out all the uh, avenues. I'm going with the latter there. I think they were connected. I mean, it's just too, it's too on the nose, man. This whole thing is just too on the nose. Like they were quickly just like, let's get in there and get her out of there as quick as possible. Yeah. Americans get into trouble all over the world and you don't see the secretary of state or an ex-president stepping in and be like, let's get them out, you know? You don't see that ever. Yeah. Oh, we got to go in and free them. Those child traffickers. Let's get them out. Yeah. You never see this unless it's child trafficking. And then they're like, well, let's get in there. We got to help them. So it's just it's just really weird. So for both Hillary and Bill Clinton to stop whatever they were doing and make this matter their number one priority and that they personally stepped in and handled it behind closed doors with their attorneys speaks volumes. Well, not to mention that the woman tried to kidnap and exploit 73 children, and then, dude, she got away with a slap on the wrist. As No, a, no, 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 no. She got a flat tire. You know when you walk behind someone and step on their heel as they're about to take a step? <laughs> that's right, yeah, and then the shoe falls off. I freaking hate that. Don't we all? Well, that's basically what she got. Well, if they did it right, then they could have given her two flat tires, you know? No, those are the worst, man. The double flats. Horrible experience. Horrible indeed, Coop. But yeah, Laura got off squeaky clean because of the Clintons' involvement. Like, it's one thing that the ex-president and sitting Secretary of State would get so intimately involved with the situation of an American trying to traffic children. First of all, they never do that. But it's a whole other thing that the person who is in a whole lot of trouble, like some serious trouble... Double trouble. 1992, David Carradine. Nothing but trouble. 1991, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Demi Moore. Always outdoing me. Every time. Point is that this person who is in some serious shite, Laura Silsby, for trafficking at least 33 children and attempting to traffic 73, she gets the Clintons on her side and everything goes away. Yeah, dude. So it's just a whole other level of suspicious that they went in there, got her off the hook, just like that. And behind closed doors, so we don't get to hear any of the details of that sweetheart deal. Exactly, bro. We don't get to hear anything about how that went down. And so now, let's get to where Laura finally returns home to Idaho. And this is where the fucked up gets to the really fucked up. In 2011, Laura started working with a company called My State USA, which is an emergency notification company that is headed by a woman named Claudia Bittner. My State USA would change to Alert Sense and Laura was their vice president of marketing. Now, before you're all like, uh, so what, blah, 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 I don't care about this. Well, the purpose of Alert Sense is to provide a platform for issuing large-scale emergency alerts, like statewide and even nationwide, maybe continental, who knows. But Alert Sense works very closely with FEMA's Integrated Public Alert and Warning System, or IPAWS, and also with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And one of IPAW's functions is to issue those things you hardly ever hear about, Amber Alerts, which are alerts issued in kidnapping cases statewide and internationally. Man, she's their vice president of marketing yes. whenever an exploited child goes missing. Yes. Just yeah. a child in general. Ugh, I hate it. So as of today, Laura Silsby is listed under the AlertSense employee contact list. And anybody can go check that out. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, really. So yeah, the woman that was caught trafficking children at least two times that we know of is still employed at AlertSense. The company has since changed its name to Conexus 
after the company and its technology and its employees were responsible for the January 13th, 2018 false missile alert in Hawaii. You remember that shit? Which aired over every single piece of equipment capable of issuing any sort of alert. And that alert said the following. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. It was also broadcast over many different locations around the United States. <laughs> you don't remember that? Oh my god, dude. No, I actually uh legitimately I don't know where I was or what I was doing, Man. but I did not hear about this. But that's so crazy. Dude, it was huge. It was people were freaking out, man. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So they say that in the first three minutes, the National Guard knew that it was not a legit alert. But then it took another 48 minutes or so until the public was notified. But this was a huge deal. It freaked out a lot of people. Everyone in or near Hawaii was sure that they were going to be killed by missiles. Everyone was getting into bunkers, just scrambling around. And for nearly one hour, dude, nearly one hour, people were just waiting for the bombs to drop. Wow. I can't even imagine getting that alert. 2018. That's so insane. Because you don't want to be the one person that looks at your phone or whatever device, and you're like, nah. You know? Everyone else is like, why didn't you get... Why didn't he go to shelter? You're just the one guy. But this is the one time where you'd be fine. And dude, the drill... I just want to say something about this. the drill that went off, man. It was obviously loud as fuck. I don't know if anyone's heard a missile drill. They're loud for a reason. And this went on for an hour. And your phones are going off. All sorts of other things are going off. The internet is proliferated with all these messages. Your Instagram, your whatever was going off. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. That's just being repeated over and over. That's so insane. Mm -hmm. Sketchy shit. And Scott, guess who is listed as the chairman of Conexus? Oh, boy. Uh, just tell me, man. Just, just bring me down hard. It's Von Hansen. Vaughn is also there. Isn't that interesting? Everywhere. He's everywhere. So anyway, let's talk about Amber Alert. Because this stuff is pretty crazy here. The Amber Alert system was created as a way to find abducted children and was put into place by Bill Clinton in 1996. The acronym stands for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response and was created for the nine-year-old girl who was kidnapped and later found brutally murdered, Amber Hagerman. The department says they recommend certain criteria for issuing an Amber Alert, but it seems that they demand that the criteria be met, and we'll see why in a minute. But here are the criteria. One, the police must confirm that an abduction took place. Two, the child is at risk of serious injury or death. Three, there is enough descriptive information of child or captor. Four, the child must be 17 or younger. Five, the child's info should immediately be placed into the FBI's National Crime Information Center and flagged as child abduction. So the Amber Alert is integrated into Google and other search engines on Facebook. And when I was going through some of this history on Amber Alert, I came across a section in 2007 when Amber Alert partnered up with everybody's friend, Tom, you know, over there at MySpace. Remember Tom over at MySpace? As soon as you said Tom, I knew who you, knew. you were talking about. Absolutely. Yeah everybody's friend and i can just picture him now he's he's you know he's over there at his desk just sitting there in his chair always has his head turned over in our direction the big old smile on his face oh yeah that cute haircut yeah that wave he always gave everyone 
Man. Ah, nostalgia. I can see it now. Tom, where are you? So let me ask you a question, Scott. How many Amber Alerts have you personally seen? How many? Give me a number. Six, 11, 23, 47. How many? Hmm. Uh, more than one, for sure. Less than 10, okay. for sure. Okay. Yeah. So you have seen them. Okay. Yep, I have so seen them. So I think them. I've seen... I've seen at least one. I think it was maybe uh, the one for Shasta and Dylan Groney. Groan, I think it's Groney. Um, back in like 2005. Well, to be fair, my perception is a little bit skewed because I didn't even get a device that could receive such communications until about 2008. Okay. So, yeah, my the one I would have seen would have come after that, or the few that I would have seen. Okay, so you, you've seen one. That's That's important. So, Scott, let's start this off with a bit of a base to work with. Let's go over some stats. I am so down, brother. All right. Good. Yeah. Yes. So, between 2006 and 2022, there were a total of 765 Amber Alerts issued. In those years, 2019 had the lowest at 134, while 2006 had the highest at 261. Right behind that was 2021 with 254 Amber Alerts. In all other years listed, the average was around 200. And just last year, 2022, I think we all remember it, uh, there were 181 Amber Alerts. Now, I just want to throw some crazy facts around here. In 2022, there were 34,828 missing child reports filed in Texas alone. And of those 34,828 separate cases, there were only 31 Amber Alerts, or 17% of all Amber Alerts issued that year, in which there were 181. Why were there so few Amber Alerts issued? It's because of the criteria that needs to be met before one will be issued, which is complete bullshit. For instance, runaways do not even meet the criteria, no matter what their age, which is entirely fucked. That seems like a huge misguidance there. I mean, this is still a young person who people need to be on the lookout for because you could more quickly return this person to their home. Like, even if they're trying to run away, I mean, they should still be returned to some kind of authority. So it just seems like a huge oversight. Yeah, and you made a good point there. You said quickly. That's that's great because time is important here. Absolutely. But... While we're on Texas, let's bring up the case of Athena Strand. In November of 2022, seven-year-old Athena was abducted from her father's front yard in Wise County by a FedEx delivery driver. I think you remember this, Scott. This was all over the news. Well, the mother, Maitland, kept demanding that an Amber Alert be issued, but the authorities kept telling her that Athena's case did not meet the criteria for an Amber Alert to be issued. It would be 48 hours later when Athena's body was found at the edge of Trinity River. Athena's mother is adamant that if an Amber Alert was issued immediately, it could have made a difference. But the police believe otherwise. That's cold, too, that the police would stand by that and say, like, nope, sorry, wouldn't have helped. Nope. Mm -hmm. It's bullshit, man. 48 hours. In Indiana, in 2015, King Walker, the toddler grandson of Eugene Bynum Jr., disappeared in Gary, Indiana, and is still missing to this day. Records in the case show that the state authorities turned down a request for an Amber Alert by the local authorities because the state did not think that the case met the criteria. Eugene said that the police told him they needed a license plate. How fucked is that? That is ridiculous. It's almost like they're not taking it seriously. A lot of them don't. 
But how many children go missing in the United States every year? How many? Take a guess. Take a uh, guess. Take a guess. Take a guess. Come gosh. Take a guess. I'm, I'm Throw a mean, number out there. Yeah. Throw a number at me. 500,000? That's a really good guess. According to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, around 460,000 children go missing in the United States every year. So where do they all go? They have that stat. That is the stat. Wow. Okay. I don't know. Where do they all go? Every year, ma'am, nearly half a million children go missing. It's absurd. And if you go back and look at the records, which I said a moment ago, Amber Alerts are only issued right around 200 times every year. 460,000 children go missing, and the Amber Alert is issued around 200 times. So what's with the other 458,800 missing children? It's pretty absurd, man. I mean, it's really messed up. But question... Nearly 500,000 go missing. So how many are found each year? What's the stat on that? I don't know, man. I don't know. It's hard to find an exact number, but they, as in the FBI and all those guys, say that a rough estimate is around 97% that are found alive. And that's hard to believe, but I guess we're just going to have to go with it for the sake of time here. And going off of that, 97% of 460,000 is 446,200. That leaves 13,800. So where are those 13,800 children? Yeah, right. I mean, it's important to remember that with the stat, um, with such a high number, 97% sounds like a lot, but it leaves a lot. And that's mystery. what a lot of people, like, it, it's kind of like people don't understand that. It's like they hear the number, 97%. They hear that like, oh, that's good, which it is. But at the same time, it's also not. Like what? Ninety-seven percent. That leaves thirteen, almost fourteen thousand children missing. That's a lot of missing children. Yeah, right. And only two hundred Amber Alerts. Yeah. And as one would suspect, children go missing at a higher rate in California, New Mexico, and Texas. And you know, it's said that anywhere between two thousand and two thousand four hundred children go missing every day, which comes to anywhere between seven hundred and thirty thousand. And 876,000 children every year. It sounds crazy, but these are the numbers that everyone is reporting on. 2,000 to 2,400 go missing every day. And childwatch.org reports that in 1999, the U.S. Department of Justice reported that there were about 795,000 missing children reports. Of those, 203,900 were the victims of family abductions. 58,200 were the victims of non-family abductions, and 115 were the victims of the stereotypical kidnapping involving a perpetrator who does not know the victim. And they say that the majority of the missing children are runaways who typically return home or wherever. They don't have a good answer, and I mean, yeah, it's a complicated issue, of course. But with awareness, we could be doing a little bit more because... If you think about it this way, every single person who shoots up a school gets a ton of media attention. Everybody knows who that person is. They by become the a celebrity. Day. When a child goes missing, nobody knows. Nobody. Only two hundred a year of the Amber Alerts go out like this person's missing. You That's know, pretty insane, man. Doesn't seem very helpful. Seems a little bit uh, like we got our priorities a little ass backwards. It's a good thing you mentioned that. So let's move on to the darker side of the Amber Alert, or its failures, I should say. First of all, 
The Pauli Kloss Foundation reports that only one out of every 10,000 that go missing is found dead. Now, hold on, Coop. For those that are bad at math. Wait, wait, wait. What are, what are you? No, hold on, hold on. You, I got this. I got this, Coop. I got this. You just press those sweet, sweet lips nice and tight for a minute so Papa can did this maths. <laughs> I think that comes out to 1,000 children that are found dead. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So the FBI did some research, and apparently, out of all of the children that are murdered by their abductor, the vast majority are killed within the first three hours. In fact, about 47% are murdered within the first hour, while around 76% are dead within three hours. Furthermore, the bodies of the murdered children are typically found within less than 1.5 miles in 46% of the cases, and less than 12 miles in 76.5% of cases from where they were abducted. Jeez, that seems like really close. Very close and very quick. So the messed up part is that in fewer of one-third of all Amber Alerts are issued within three hours. So for whatever reason... There was a shit ton of red tape that the authorities dance around as they determine if the missing child meets the criteria. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there'd be great justification for that. Like, it takes three hours to get an Amber Alert out. Maybe they'd be like, oh, you have no idea how fast that is with the way things go. And I'm like, if that's fast for the way things go, then the way things go needs to change. Yeah, which means the whole system needs to change. And here's our advice on the matter, man. So if someone you know goes missing, especially a child, do not wait 48 hours. That's absurd. We always hear stories about the police turning people away who try to make a missing persons report because they didn't wait 48 hours. That's complete bullshit. Do not wait 48 hours. Demand to file the report right then and there. There is no law stating that you have to wait 48 hours. Plus, as the authorities are well aware of what I just explained, 76% of abducted children who are murdered are murdered within the first three hours. So why the fuck would the police want you to wait 48 hours? It makes no sense. What's more important? A drug addict trying to buy some drugs? A car parked in a handicap zone? A drunk guy at some market? The homeless people taking over the parks? What's the priority here? No shit, man. Especially when the average police response time in the U.S. is something like between 10 and 20 minutes, they say. Time is of the essence. Every second is absolutely crucial. Haley Owens was a 10-year-old girl from Springfield, Missouri, who was abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered by 45-year-old Craig Wood on February 18, 2014. Witnesses who saw the abduction gave the local law enforcement, who were the Springfield Police Department, the suspect's description, the vehicle make, vehicle color, and even the license plate within 15 minutes. But the Springfield Police Department, for whatever reason, wasn't authorized to issue an Amber Alert. That was the job of the Missouri State Highway Patrol. Instead, the police issued a news release, which was better than nothing. And as the MSHP went over their criteria and double-checked it and then had a supervisor triple-check it, by 7.07 p.m., two hours and 19 minutes later, an Amber Alert was finally issued and the public finally had a description of the person and vehicle. Soon... The license plate would come up with a match, which ended up being Craig's parents, who then directed them to Craig's house, where authorities found the body of Haley wrapped in two garbage bags and stuffed into a plastic storage container. She was shot in the back of the head. That is awful. 
really awful. Man, it makes you wonder like how many times the Amber Alerts are denied and you just never know. You know what? You know? You're right. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's talk about Michigan for a second. In a 12-month period between June of 2019 and June of 2020, the Michigan State Police denied all 12 Amber Alert requests made by local police. Did you hear that? All 12. Most of them were chalked down to being runaways, which apparently don't matter, or family abductions, which again, apparently don't matter. Yikes. All 12, bro. Yeah. Like, nope. Sorry. Doesn't qualify. Furthermore, between January 2017 and June 2022 in Michigan, local police agencies made 86 requests for Amber Alerts. The state coordinator in charge approved only 19 of those 86. Weird. I just wish they were at least called on to justify why they make these decisions, but I've never seen anybody on TV talking about Amber Alerts or why they do what they do. You know? You never hear anything about this. No, not even a peep. Local police agencies made 86 requests for Amber Alerts. The state coordinator in charge approved only 19. Who is making these decisions and how are they justifying this? I know. In that five-year period, Ohio approved 61% of all Amber Alerts. Indiana approved just over half of all requests. And what about Risqu- <laughs> what about Wisconsin? And what about Wisconsin? And what about Wisconsin? What about Wisconsin? Oh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Well, they approved only 28%. And these states were chosen for a study by the U for a study by USA Today, by the way, in case you were wondering. Yeah, it makes you wonder. So they have off the one, 61% of the other. I'm glad people are finally kind of looking into it. Like, hey, what are we doing with this system that we have in place here? Like, are we using it correctly? Are we not using it enough? And I feel like I'd argue that we're not using it enough. I would argue that it just doesn't work. It's completely, uh, it works sometimes. I don't know, man. It's just like, okay, well, let me, let me go to what Timothy Griffin says. So here's this guy, Timothy Griffin. He's an associate criminal justice professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has studied the Amber Alert system for nearly two decades and has concluded that Amber Alerts usually don't work. What? Really? And what are they for? That's right. He calls them crime control theater and says that most children will be found safe with or without an Amber Alert. Interesting. I know. That gets my mind going like, well, what the hell is happening with it? What's going on here? So he studied 500 Amber Alerts between 2012 and 2015 and found that the more important factor was whether the abductor was a family member, an acquaintance, or a complete stranger, which, yeah, that's a pretty important factor, obviously. But he argues, rightfully, that the authorities rarely ever issue an alert fast enough to prevent a tragedy, which, I mean, I already just explained it, it's, it's true. It's completely true. So he's saying that the issue lies within the reaction time of the authorities in issuing an alert rather than the issue being in the system itself. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. I mean, it sounds like both are fucked. The system and the people operating the system. It's just, it's all fucked and he's changed. True, true. It's, There's just too, it's too much human element in there. So people are like, it's it's like so subjectively based, not objectively. Mm, yes, you know? Exactly. Now, Scott, this is going to sound really crazy, but a lot of people think it's true, and it just might be. All right, lay it on me. There are a lot of people who say that the Amber Alert system is a system set up to alert child traffickers to allow them to stay one step ahead of the pursuing authorities. What do you think about that? Whoo, man. 
That is heavy to wrap my mind around. Seriously. The reason I'm saying it's heavy, there's two reasons, actually. One reason is that it's it was set up by the Clintons, which have been implicated in several child trafficking-related things. Now, I know we haven't delved into that, dived into that, and I'm not. I'm just being devil's advocate here, just making a little connection. I'm not uh, trying to step down that road or anything. And the other reason it's heavy is, I'm sure you know the same thing that most people would think, which is this. The system, in theory, was set up to help. It was set up to be a good thing. And the fact that it could potentially be used for something so just evil and, you know, um, just these ill-gotten gains, like that to me is, it's terrible. It's a horrible thought. Yeah, it is, man. And if you think about it, if like, let's just say that it is a system for child traffickers to use. And you think about it, you're like, that makes complete sense. Seeing how so little, you know, Amber Alerts get issued. and But here's my take on it. Sure. Yeah, that might be going on. But just like many things in life, a perfectly innocuous thing or idea is taken and then corrupted by a group of people and used for less than innocuous reasons. Facebook, Wayfair, eBay, Amazon, all that shit. It's it's not necessarily the platform's fault that illegal operations occur within their system. It's just that whenever there is a perfect system that has been set up, there will always be nefarious people with bad intentions who will exploit that system for their benefit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so I wanted to touch on the Clinton Foundation really quick and how Bill and Hillary completely raped Haiti in their own right. But we don't have time here, so we'll probably do an entire episode on just that alone another time. But I'll say this. The Clinton Foundation was said to have raised billions of dollars to help the people of Haiti. They openly advertised that 100% of donations would go directly to relief efforts. On their website, they touted that the program was supporting long-term programs to develop Haiti's business class. And that sounds lovely on the blistery scab surface, but what this really meant was that they took all of that money and used it for foreign investments and all that other shady shit that the Clintons have always done and continue to do. So now that they had all this money flowing in, the next step was to set up contracts with companies who would be involved in the cleanup and rebuilding. By showing their appreciation to their favorite donors, the Clintons gave these contracts to people they owed favors to. They're called Friends of Bill. And so the contractors would go to work on cleaning up and rebuilding. The first thing they do is transport all those leftover emergency trailers provided by FEMA from Hurricane Katrina that Bill said were hurricane-proof down to Haiti for the housing and schools and medical and everything else. The trailers were already in deplorable condition before they were even sent. I mean, they had been sitting for a solid two years. And so by the time they were set up and being utilized, literally just weeks later, the children and adults were getting sick due to a shit ton of mold growing all over the interiors of the trailers, as well as the interiors being covered with formaldehyde, which gave off horrible fumes in the humid heat. They were also leaking water and had poor gas connections, which also leaked. It all just added to the overall chaos. Ugh, man, that just sounds horrible. I'm like such a mess up. So in their efforts to rebuild, the farmers in Haiti would literally be kicked off of their land in a place called Caracol and forced to leave their livelihoods so that a $300 million factory could be built by the Clintons. The factory took up about 600 acres and produces clothes sold to Old Navy, Walmart, and Target. And it said that the higher paying upper management jobs of the factories were Dominican Republic employees 
who oversaw the Haitian laborers who were making at most $5 per day working long hours. Old pinch my nose, slap my face, and call me bitch Bill came out and declared (laughs) that 100,000 jobs would be created when in reality there were only 8,000. So here's how the BBC broke it down. Something like $13.3 billion or 10.9 billion pounds was pledged by international donors. Hillary Clinton swooped in as Secretary of State and basically appointed herself the chairman of the Interim Haiti Recovery Commission. I think the other co-chairman was the Prime Minister of Haiti at the time, Jean-Max Bellerive. Jean-Max Bellerive would only be Prime Minister for about two years, starting in October of 2009 until he resigned in May of 2011 which is remarkable timing. Yeah, what's uh, tell me about what he picked up next. So he resigned from being the PM, but still sat as co-chairman next to Hillary Clinton of a commission in charge of a shit ton of money. But a little bit on this guy. In 2017, Jean-Max Bellerive was wanted for corruption-related charges and possible murder charges. He was also facing charges of money laundering and misappropriation of funds and properties. Oh, yeah. Definitely sounds like the guy you want sitting on the board controlling the money, for sure. It definitely sounds like a Clinton friend. But out of about $9 billion, $5.4 went to non-Haitian organizations, $580 million went to the Haitian government, and about $36 million went to Haitian organizations. Where the rest went is anyone's guess. Maybe Jean-Max Bellerif? Maybe Hillary? Who knows? We do know that the Haitian president would build himself quite a lavish mansion with money he got from somewhere. And in the aftermath of the giant mess, the U.S. Government Accountability Office would find no hint of wrongdoing, but concluded that the interim Haiti Recovery Commission's decisions were, quote, unquote, not necessarily aligned with Haitian priorities. Wow. Uh, Well, that's pretty shady that they would come out and say that but it's even shadier that they even had to say that at all i mean right <laughs> the whole thing is just ridiculous and you know what canada was also tightly involved and raised something like 600 million dollars but of that only about two percent went to haiti while the rest went to private contractors and presumable friends of bill which is pretty much a system they made for special ious oh yeah and then there's this part hillary clinton's brother Tony Soft Rodham had apparently bought the Monibasi mine in northern Haiti in 2012, which was very close to the Caracol factory complex, by the way. And it was pretty good timing to buy up a shit ton of land with a bunch of new money, right? Haiti is still desperately trying to rebuild, so they need the money. And then the Clintons come on by with an offer with far less money than the land is actually technically worth. But Haiti couldn't pass it up, being how corrupt they were, being just by proxy. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like another person capitalizing on a situation where, you know, they could just get in cheap and get out rich. Not just any person either, a Clinton. True, true. Clinton, not just any person. Brother of Hillary. Tony Soft Rodham was then placed on the board of directors of VCS Mining, the mining firm that operates on the 10,000-acre chunk of land. But apparently, and probably due to so much scrutiny being given to the Clinton crime family during Hillary's 2016 desperate attempt to become the next puppet president, Tony Soft Rodham would resign in March of 2016, taking some of the eyes off of their operation. Yeah, it's probably good that he... 
I mean, it's probably not good that he resigned. I kind of wish that he had stayed up there so there would have been more eyes on the operation, but I'm sure as soon as there was not a conflict of interest, they were like, nah, we're not going to look into this anymore. Because you know there's tons of people on Capitol Hill that have shady business deals going on. All the time. So, you know, nobody wants to look into that too hard because then they're like, well, don't look at me. Hey, man, don't look at me. Exactly. You look at one person and then it just, you see the whole weave. You got to look at all of them. But a positive side note on the Clintons, if there ever was one, in 2021, donations to the Clinton Foundation fell 75%. Woo, dang, that's crazy. applause for that, that's a great thing. Damn. Good, man. Yeah. All right, one last point to make here on Laura Silsby, and we'll finish this out. Monica Peterson. Who was Monica Peterson? Monica Peterson was the assistant director at the Human Trafficking Center in Colorado. She also worked on the data and research task force with the same center and was a research interim at the laboratory to combat human trafficking. She was also elbows deep in some in-depth research about human trafficking. On August 15th, 2015, Monica made a post on a Facebook page that was apparently for the topic of human trafficking and announced her plans to travel to Haiti and was looking for leads on any sex work organizations that might be operating in Haiti that she could get into contact with when she was there. I'm not sure if she had any solid leads, but she did travel to Haiti and was there for about a month when she finally messaged her friend Bella on Facebook and told her about what she had discovered so far. On January 3rd, 2016, she informed Bella that she had discovered that the Clintons' name kept popping up, as well as other people closely associated with them. The following is a verbatim message or a post made by Monica to her friend Bella on Facebook. Quote, Some wisdom you can only get from fieldwork. Quite a scandal. And as the anniversary of Haiti's earthquakes approaches this week, along with the upcoming 2016 presidential elections in both Haiti and the U.S., this is significant. It's unsurprising to me, personally, but starts to connect the dots on what I really suspected. If the Clintons plan to disseminate Haiti with a gold looting, apparently contracting with the Dominican Republic, not Haiti, I guess we know why Martelli's guy is set to steal the elections. Miss Clinton has corrupt and dirty business to finish in Haiti. The people suffer so. This is the theory my master's thesis puts forth. This is modern structural slavery, disaster capitalism at its finest. End quote. The next day, she sent Bella another message. This time, she said, quote, But the real significance of the scandal for me, I know you feel me, Bella, is the link to contemporary slavery and trafficking. I can't say to what extent... But there is human trafficking happening through the Clintons' caracal complex. End quote. Bella then shares a long and very detailed message that Monica wrote about the Clintons and their connection to human trafficking and other nefarious business dealings in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. There's too much to mention here, so we're going to put a link in the show notes if you'd like to see a pretty good expose on Monica Peterson. Anyway, Monica was not some newbie to the issue of human trafficking, obviously. She was researching the problem for a long time and even testified alongside Professor Claude de Estre in front of the Colorado Senate Committee on Human Trafficking. Claude de Estre is a world-renowned professor of international law and human trafficking. He is also sort of suspect in a way. Aside from that, she gave presentations on the subject as well, and she was making waves as a result, which were rocking a lot of people's yachts. Yeah, I bet. Um, Like actually going to the places, asking around, and then telling people what she's finding, 
you know. And there are not a lot of details, like, at all. So what we do have is this. Professor Claude Deastrey worked with DynCorp between 1999 and 2002. This This is the very time period that DynCorp was caught trafficking children for sex in Bosnia and Kosovo. They got caught, but nothing happened. Then... DynCorp popped up in Haiti after the earthquake. What's DynCorp? It's a shady company that provide and manage installations for military bases for the Department of Defense and the Department of State. And they provide security services and computer tech and all that stuff. They pop up wherever there is an open game for some exploitation. DynCorp no longer exists, though. It was bought by Amentum, which is another military contractor that has made billions upon billions over the past 15 years. Anyway, Monica Peterson would be found dead in Haiti on November 13th, 2016 by apparent hanging. Her mother suspects foul play, as well as all of her friends, family, and colleagues. And as of yet, apparently her body has never been given to her family. It's like the Haitian government made sure to find her first after she hanged herself and then took her body to show some people before they toss it into the sea. You know, where is it? It's been like eight years. Where's the body? Yeah, that's really spooky. Suddenly she's just found dead by hanging. There's no way that she committed suicide. It just doesn't make sense. The authorities said she hanged herself, but there were no pictures. There were no reports. Like, the police didn't show the body. The police didn't give her family any closure. Like, where's the body? Why why wasn't this publicized? Yeah, she literally just disappeared. They disappeared her, dude. But check this out. Only two weeks prior to Monica Peterson's death, WikiLeaks would drop a bunch of Hillary's emails that connected Hillary to the Haitian child trafficker, Laura Silsby. Great news. Like, the best news for Monica Peterson. And not the best news for Hillary. But we don't care about her. Yeah, let's talk about Monica Peterson. Every mainstream media news outlet and all their fact checkers, side note, fuck Snopes, and all the fact checkers, obviously say that there is no connection between Monica or her in-depth field research in human trafficking involving the Clintons or her death in Haiti during Hillary's 2016 bid for puppet presidency. They all say it's a bunch of hogwash, a bunch of a bunch of bunk poppycock, nothing but hokum and horse feathers, which should not be a surprise to anyone. Because all the fact checkers are paid off. It's corrupt. Yes, they are. It seems that whenever someone gets too close to their dirt, they end up murdered or suicided. And there are a lot. That's why there is the Clinton body count. But we do have, thankfully, the electronic records that are preserved from these people, which you can clearly see they're getting close to the the same thing. Yeah. You know, like across the board. And apparently, you know, if you start a fake orphanage with the intention to traffic as many foreign children as you possibly can, then you are quietly pushed up the corporate ladder And we end up working for Amber Alert in the United States, the very system put in place to prevent child trafficking. But unfortunately, you can't just be anybody. You need to be someone with connections and or money. But if you have the money, then presumably you already have the connections. So, well, that's a dark outlook. Yeah. Well, Scott, what do you say? Let's close this down. Ladies and gentlemen, that is today's episode on Laura Silsby and her connection to some very powerful people who watch out for their own and who silence the dissenters and who raise their friends to high places. It's sad, it sucks, but it's real. It's real life, folks. So it's better to just know. You don't want to exist in bliss, quote-unquote bliss, which is actually just ignorance. So we're here to tell you. 
And now, dear listeners, this is the part of the show where we politely ask that you subscribe to the podcast and like us and share us wherever you possibly can. Please, extra yes, please. Yes, and we can't thank you all enough for your awesome support up to this point. You guys are all making this happen. You guys are the reason that we come back week after week. Because seriously, like if we didn't have anybody listening or writing us or tuning in and we were just a couple of guys talking, I mean, yeah, maybe we'd get listened to eventually, but maybe, you know, we'd just be kind of like, what the hell are we doing week after week, you know? But literally because you guys are following, liking and adding us to your library, we're we're coming back. We're continuing to make content and we really appreciate it. So thank you. And you can also reach out to us by emailing us or head to our Facebook page, or better yet, our Twitter page. And that is at Paranatica. Absolutely. And as always, help spread the name of the podcast by doing whatever quirky things your beating heart desires. Here's an example. Take 100 small pieces of paper, small enough to put inside books at your local library. Take these pieces of paper and write on them, put the book down. Listen to the Paranatica podcast. No! And then obviously... Go to your library, insert these notes into your 100 most favorite book titles, or maybe your least favorite book titles, if you want to change up. Yeah, any book title. That's brilliant. Thanks for the advice, Scott. Great idea. That's the only kind of ideas that I ever have, Coop. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again, everyone. And until next week, let it all hang out proudly, and we'll see you next week. We'll check you and your stones at the door. Thank you, and good night.